This is the Ampere Industrial Security Critical Assets Podcast. Each episode, we cover important OT and ICS security topics with an eye towards standards and regulation to keep you ahead of your adversaries and your auditors. Hello, good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are. This is Patrick Miller with the Critical Assets Podcast. Today, we are going to talk about energizing cybersecurity careers, workforce development in ICS and OT. And with me, I've got Cynthia Sue and I've got Aaron Owens, two wonderful experts. I had the joy of being on a panel with both of them recently at a DOE event called the Energy Transition Summit Grid Modernization Initiative and Clean Energy Cybersecurity, long name for a great event. And we had about an hour or so long panel at the end of the day on the first day, and it went probably 30 minutes long, like into the reception. It was such a great conversation. So... That was the impetus for bringing this all together. I wanted to get both of you back in a forum and talk about some of these things so that others outside of the room that we were in recently could hear about it and we could just really continue the conversation. So first, uh, Cynthia, tell us a little about yourself and then we'll go to Aaron. Sure, and great to be here. Thank you for the invitation, Patrick. So um, my name is Cynthia Sue, and I'm a program manager in the Department of Energy in the Office of Cybersecurity, Energy Security and Emerging Response called Caesar for short. Um, and I've been there um, coming up on two years. But I would say uh, what's what's sort of been fun about my path and ending up there is I didn't start there at all. I'm pretty much on my fourth career of very different careers. I started as a journalist, uh, actually, in D.C., covering the Hill and covering the Supreme Court and covering um, the federal agencies. And then I jumped uh, for a while, took a, took a stab at academia, it didn't quite fit so well at that point, jumped out of that and worked in social services. So I have um, an interesting perspective on the people part of cyber. Um, had a lot of work with a wide range, uh, rape crisis, alcohol recovery, developmentally disabled, and just really getting a sense of, of what the behavioral aspects are that come into who you are and how you are. And I jumped ship from that and went into agriculture. And I spent more than 15 years as an soil scientist and an agricultural entomologist. And, and from there, I ended up in cyber. And I, and I say that because I think there are a lot of people out there who don't feel like they can fit in this space. And they think that they need a computer degree or they need um, a background in technology. And, and I will say that I'm living proof that that's not true. It is a space that can accommodate a wide range of skills. And I think that diversity of thought is essential in cyber in ways that, that maybe isn't isn't seen by newbies to this field who are thinking, oh, that sounds interesting, but what can I do? And I would also say that for me, what really drives my appeal in this and to stay in this, and I think hopefully this will be the last jump in my odd career cycle, is the mission. So I work specifically with utilities that are um, cooperative or municipally owned. They're usually the ones that serve uh, a large population of people that um, are economically depressed areas. There are generally electric utilities that are cooperatively owned or municipally owned spring up when there's not enough profit to be made. And so the for-profit utilities don't, don't find a real value in being there. So here's this mission. I, I'm in the tilting of windmills world. Here's this mission of helping these utilities uh, become better at their cybersecurity however we can. And it's exciting because it really does engage the people part 
and the process and governance. And I, I, I did a lot of stuff in, in politics for a while um, on the side and the technology, because at heart, I'm still a techno nerd. And I really like the science of it. And in cyber is one of these few places where all three of those are so essential and you get to play in all three of those spaces to really be effective. And there's this amazing mission where most of the United States is served by these electric utilities and they're never going to have the financial resources to do what the larger for-profit utilities do. So I love it and I love the people in this space and it's just a joy to, to work with all of you. Um, and I'm looking forward to this conversation. So thanks, Patrick. Fantastic. What an amazing and diverse background. I have a, a certain affinity for the entomology area because my background's microbiology. Uh, okay, Aaron, tell us about yourself and also, you know, add into this to your diverse background that brought you to where you are now. Oh, yeah, thank you. And I like that introduction from Cynthia where, you know, you get that broader view of her life experience and so many different career choices that have led to that brilliant mind that we interface with today. Um, yeah, my name is Aaron Owens, and and I have been a CISO for 12 companies, uh, six full-time and six as an interim or kind of C CISO for hire after a breach or when a company needed a confidence boost or something of that nature. Um, but yeah, like Cynthia, I also started as a graphic artist, um, tried my I tried to do that professionally for a while before I realized there's artists just don't get paid. I don't know if anyone knows that. Uh, it's very difficult to survive as an artist. Uh, and then I came into computers and specifically in IT and then transitioned into cybersecurity almost 20 years ago at this point. And, um, and in my capacity as a cybersecurity professional, I've done a lot of cool things. Uh, I've been a hacker, a researcher. I've been a uh, led red teams and broken into lots of facilities. Um, as a consultant, I've, I've consulted with the energy sector significantly. I served as an interim CISO for the Bureau of Reclamation, uh, delivered projects at Exelon, ERCOT, Austin Energy, Enron, Transformer Protector Corporation, and TXU. Um, so kind of bridging around, around this sector for a period of time, my recent work as the executive director for the Cyber Defense Center, a not-for-profit in the state of Colorado, um, has brought us together. And that's probably going to lead to some great things. I certainly hope so. We'll, yeah. we'll talk about some of those things later on. I may make some kind of soft announcements of some things to come. <laughs> All right. Thank you both for the intro. I am absolutely excited to have you both here. Our conversation at the, the DOE event was really good. So some questions that I came up with even after that discussion. I'm going to start first with you, Cynthia. What specific cybersecurity skills are currently most lacking within the energy sector? And I want to go beyond the energy sector. So like kind of generalize into all of ICS and OT. Uh, and how can educational institutions adapt their curriculum to meet these needs? I think um, the one that I keep hearing is we're focused a lot on knowledge, but it's really hard to get the skills and abilities up. So if you think of the classic KSA and a job description, having really interested in motivating students who want to enter this field, and I'm sure some of you have seen the job descriptions out there for what's called entry level, and there's a pretty big gap between what they're learning through academic institutions and what the industry is looking for in terms of walk-in-the-door skills. Um, and 
that ability to practice on systems. Uh, one of the analogies that I that I use a lot is if you have somebody who graduated from medical school and they got top A's and they were first in their class, does that mean you want to be the first person that they do surgery on? Because there's a big gap between knowing what you need to do and being in the real world and seeing the nuances of what it means to apply that knowledge. And there aren't a lot of places for this huge group of newbies who really want to be in this space to, to learn how to do that and get that level of competence and skills that makes a hiring professional want to take them on, knowing that there's going to be some training when they come in the door. Um, but the level of training is hard. And I think one of the other challenges from the hiring end, um, which we don't have a good solution for yet, is if you're a small, medium business, and a lot of the utilities that I work with might, might fall into that, and you don't currently have anyone in cybersecurity on your staff, hiring somebody is really tough because who's going to do on-the-job training? Is going to help them get familiar with your system if they're new to the space. So you really want somebody who already knows how to do it because that's going to be the only person in your organization and you can't afford to take somebody on and train them up. So I think the hands-on skills and the ability to translate what they know into a, a real-world practice, I think the other piece, particularly for the ICS world, is so much of the academic training is IT-centric. And even in engineering and computer science, there's there's limitations about really understanding the the interplay between the digital world and the energy systems and operational systems. And that interplay and that interconnectedness and dependency is just going to increase over time. So I think that unique piece that we bring in the energy sector, um, there aren't a lot of places for people really interested in being in this space to get that. I'm seeing the same. And great, great summary. Moving to Aaron, you teach at uh, you teach IT, you know, at a university. So, what what are your thoughts on this? I I think that what Cynthia said is absolutely correct. That academia, uh, we have been traditionally focused on uh, the cybersecurity problem uh, from a information technology per technology perspective. Uh, there's a degree of uh, I would say it's a, almost like a foreign um, uh, topic to actually introduce students a lot of times to uh, s specific types of systems like industrial control systems or in, in my past, I've also uh, helped facilitate uh, some of the hacking villages at DEF CON. And, and when you're trying to get the IT community to now look at something like a drone or a robot or, uh, or even an ICS system, or election, you know, voting, electronic voting machines, they're almost like a foreign system. And you have to, it starts with an acclimation to that system, getting to know how to yeah, interface with it, engage that system. And then some of those skill things that Cynthia had just mentioned do come to bear, but they're very specific in how they operate and, and how they work to the point where um, without some of that prior knowledge, uh, I think there's a lot of fear, uncertainty, and doubt associated with how to actually engage this technology and how to make it better and how to secure it. You know, there there seems to be a focus in academia um, on making it really attractive and and red teaming is attractive. And yeah. when you come out of school with that kind of knowledge, 
the, the level of skill that you really need to have to get a job in red teaming is, is actually quite high. And there doesn't seem to be the same attractiveness. And we, I think, as a community need to a better, do a better job of how we market blue, blue teaming, how we market the blue team, and how important it is to have the defender skill um, and to make that as appealing as the attacker skill. And, and I, don't, I don't know how we're going to do that, but I think that is a really big gap if we just improve their skills on the red team side, but we don't actually improve their skills on the blue team side, I think we're missing the mark. And a lot of the, even the red team stuff I see, a lot of it is really more certification based. There's not a lot, there's just not a lot of university style training on this. There's not a lot of institutions that, that teach these skills, especially for OT. Yeah. yeah. And, and what I've heard from some of the colleges is it's, it's, there's, we know there's a dearth in the population already in the pool of people we're all pulling from for ICF cyber and to get to get academic faculty who know this is really hard. I mean, the salary is hard, the academic world is hard and is a challenge. So how we actually get the trainers to train the students in ICS is I think another, you know, I, I think they would like to push into this space more, but they have a really hard time finding people who can teach it. So on the next question, uh, I'm gonna stay with you, Cynthia. You mentioned the kind of walk in the door skills or entry level skills in the previous answer. Talk more about the career pathways available for cybersecurity professionals in either the energy sector or other ICSOT sectors. If they're entry levels, advancement opportunities, what do these look like? What's available? What I've seen is not so much really um, well nailed down paths. I know that NIST and the NICE team is working really hard on on getting the NICE framework to look at OT cybersecurity, but the pathway to get from A to B, I don't think is so clear. What I have learned though, is there are some very creative opportunities or I don't know what you would call them, examples, examples of innovation pulling from historical ways to, to get students across this, this gap and to get them to, to be better skilled and hireable. So apprenticeships are one, right? Yeah. I, I think we've, we have some sense of apprenticeships and the Department of Labor um, has been really building out their apprenticeship capabilities. And some people think of apprenticeships as only something that requires a new hire, but apprenticeships can also be used to upskill or reskill existing workers. And a lot of my focus has been on how to use apprenticeships that don't necessarily result in a new hire, but result in the internal pool becoming better skilled. Um, and there's a, a more like that. I mean, I can talk more about those, Patrick, if that's, if you think that would, there's some really creative ways people are doing this. Absolutely. Yeah. So, if there's more, because I'm hoping listeners will be a lot of entry-level folks maybe listening and I want them to at least maybe come away with some options. And if you've got some, yeah. I want to hear them. All right. Another one, if you're still in school, there's been a lot of creative work on something called cybersecurity clinics. So if you think about law school and law clinics, law clinics have been around a while, but there's been an increasing number of, of academic institutions that start cybersecurity clinics where they use their community and offer cybersecurity assistance to entities and organizations in their community mentored by faculty to bring students out into the community and help them solve real world problems. And I think that's just great. And um, Google just recently announced, or not recently, last year announced $10 million to, to help support the, floor, the, the growth of these clinics across the academic community. Um, and so I think the, 
that's a really interesting one. Um, anyone who's gone through an engineering school probably remembers engineering co-ops where you had to go spend a summer at a particular corporation or company and those engineering co-ops are part of what got you your jobs. In a lot of cases, the student went back to where they did a co-op because then the employer and the, and the student got to know each other. I haven't seen a lot of that in cyber. Like I haven't seen that model really implemented in cyber. Um, I think internships are something that have been around for a while. Um, I do think this shift of thinking about apprenticeships as upskilling is underutilized. Uh, it's, there's another one. That, well, it's, it's more of an example. So Sandia National Lab has this amazing pipeline. They have a SOC that they have to keep, keep funded and, um, and operating, and there's bleed rate. There's people who leave the SOC because, as anyone knows, a SOC can be a really high burnout job. So they established a whole internal pipeline across Sandia National Lab where they bring in interns from uh, one of the places is a historically black um, black college that's in college university that's that's in their area. And one of the advantages of working with an HBCU is a lot of the students are American citizens. So they bring in interns, which is a big big deal for a national lab. They bring in interns and they rotate the interns through, but they also have an internal rotation within the the Sandia complex um, across all the departments where they have people rotate into four different areas of cybersecurity, whether it's incident response or um, policy and governance. And through that, they're able to identify people across Sandia who want to work in the SOC. And so they build up their skill set from the internship level and then internally across the department to feed into their SOC to accommodate the fact that they lose people from their SOC on, on an ongoing basis. And I think that that thinking of how do you how do you think about your organization completely as a pathway to meet the needs within your organization, but also everyone leaving those SOCs is contributing to the larger need that we have across the US as really highly talented people. And there's a guy, um, Michael McGarity at the New Jersey uh, Kick and Fusion Center who took another path where he uses the fusion center to bring new people into the fusion center and train them in cybersecurity. And he knows, and not only does he know, but he, he makes sure that they leave because he sees the role of the fusion center as a way to increase the population of talent within New Jersey. I have that right, Patrick, right? New Jersey. I didn't just, um, I think so. Miss, miss, <laughs> I'm pretty sure it's New Jersey. Oh, um, I think so. Anyway, but that, that idea of taking the institutions we have and thinking about their role in the larger complex of their role in this workforce development, I just thought um, what they're doing with the Fusion Center is really very brilliant and how Sandia has sort of coordinated across the organization a solution that improves not only cybersecurity knowledge, because not everybody ends up going to the SOC, they stay in their main departments. And so you've elevated the cybersecurity knowledge across all the departments and you found a way to bring people into SOC and you found a pathway to bring in um, interns into Sandia and get them to get them acclimated and and over time to to hire up. And and Han Hanlin uh, there has this great saying that I love, which is um see one, do one, teach one. Yeah. So the idea is to get these people to see what it is, to help them learn how to do it. And then to find ways so that they can become mentors and teach. 
and and that whole philosophy guides a lot of this this uh, program that they developed at Sandia, which I just think is brilliant, and I I wish I could find ways to replicate it. No, that's fantastic, and we should definitely find ways to replicate it in in other areas. And Aaron, uh, on the same lines, describing career pathways for available professionals in ICS or OT. Again, there's a, there's this we're hearing a big gap on things like entry level. Um, there are, it sounds like apprenticeships and these other great programs from Sandia and uh, fusion centers. I even know of another utility friend of mine that has like entry level positions in their sock. Do you know of any other types of things at the entry level space? And even then, like what is the next tier and the next tier uh, for these folks to actually get ramped up in the business? I think that's a really great point. I mean, it's, I mean, I don't know if it's exclusive to entry level where we see a lot of these issues. Um, in some cases, it's you could be working within a the IT department for a company that has a large OT component. Uh, let's say it was a bulk power system or a uh, a large energy firm, and in that case, there's still a I would say that there's a lack of exposure, maybe a reluctance to uh, try to to even allow those those individuals that might have some cybersecurity training to actually plug into some of those engineering environments and 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 be trusted enough to be able to do that work. So I don't know if the problem is exclusive to just getting people into the pipeline, but it's also getting those that are actually working within these environments today upskilled to be able to support, engage, and secure those uh, those OT systems that are also within the company's scope. Uh, would it be okay to just explore that a little bit more? Absolutely. Okay. And completely agree with the the problems within the education system. I mean, talking to several professors at the conference that we were at and uh, within my own school systems that I teach at, we have, I think, zero ICS curriculum. There's nothing that really exposes students to the operational technology world. Uh, we don't really have, and I haven't seen any, uh, even if, you know, to Cynthia's point a moment ago about the NICE framework, I while she was talking about that, I was searching for skills and abilities for OT. And, and if I type in ICS, uh, I do get ICS and SCADA as a result. But if I go to that, I get no skills and abilities that have been mapped. Uh, same thing if I, if I just, if I were to just type in operational technology, that goes nowhere um, on the National Initiative for Cybersecurity Careers and Studies website. So I think that there is a general lack of career path understanding. How do I even start to get involved in this industry unless I'm already doing it? And then because those subject matter experts that are in the industry are so relied upon and so understaffed, it's very difficult to, for them to work through a mentorship program as a subject matter expert or to be able to take on an intern that's going to ask all those questions. And then that slows down their actual work where they're already in a high demand uh, and low capacity uh, uh, resource problem there. So I think that, I think there's a few things that, that we need to look at as a, as here's the problems. If we do a really good idea of defining the problems, identifying the skills that are necessary to fulfill that resource gap. And then uh, maybe there's some new ways that we can approach how to how to how to bridge, how to bring people from IT to OT, how to bring people into OT, and how to get them excited about it. I mean, that's the energizing part of this conversation too. Is you know, I think in general, because partially perhaps because it's foreign 
as a concept from an educational perspective, but, but also how do we get people excited about going into energy? I mean, I think a lot of people look at energy or other OT fields as, as legacy, as old systems. How do we get them excited about what's new? What's, what's really cool about this in new industry? Yeah, that's a I, tough I one. Think, <laughs> Cynthia? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think, Aaron, that point you just made about getting them excited. And Patrick, we talked a little bit about this at the summit, which was all about energy and the energy transition. A lot of a lot of this generation, I think, really is motivated and committed to, to being part of the solution in this energy transition. But they're not necessarily thinking about cyber as part of that. And, and the exposure and the ability for them to see that there's a there's a whole world here where cyber is going to be integral to the success and the, the the ongoing security and reliability of some of these technologies. Even just hinting at that at the academic level when they're learning about these things, or for all the people who don't go to school in a four year college and are, you know, making major contributions to this space, um, helping them get exposure to what could be a really amazing mission, um, is. I, th- I think there's a lot we we can do there still to to increase that, whether it's at the K through 12 level or um, you know I, I've talked to Patrick a bit about the role of mentoring. I think mentoring is such an important role, and um, and we do recognize it a little bit, but there are some people who really go out of their way to mentor and finding ways to really give them appreciation and encourage that. Uh, within this community, within the ICS cyber community, I think a lot of people are drawn to doing that just because they recognize that that's part of the mission and giving back. But uh, it'd be nice to find ways to really um, celebrate them. Yeah, it would be nice to recognize. A lot of the mentors I've seen in this space, they they do go without recognition, um, which is I don't know. Maybe, maybe they want recognition. Maybe they don't. <laughs> Some of them just yeah, kind of quietly want to lead. But, you know, I, I want to touch on Aaron's point about the fact that this is often perceived as legacy. And, and it is. And we've got, um, there's, oh, some unfortunate terms like the gray tsunami or the gray out. There's a lot of retirement going on in a lot of the infrastructure sections. But um, I, I would argue to those that, you know, if they, if they dig a little deeper and if they pay attention, that a lot of the industrial stuff is, it's transforming right in front of our eyes. Uh, AI is just one of the many things, industrial internet of things, the ability to put in smaller pieces of technology with basically ubiquitous connectivity where before it was really difficult to put in even like a sensor or an actuator or a PLC because you had to put the device in a very specific place based on very specific engineering with a specific communications path. It was so challenging to do that where now you can deploy sensors and many other, you know, technology components into your operation at a, you know, absolute fraction of the cost and increase the amount of technology in your platform, even in a legacy environment, just by bolting these things on. Now to mention something that was designed like today or tomorrow, Greenfield from the ground up. And the the difference in what that is, is going to be, frankly, just mind-blowing. So when we look at things like even just the electric sector, the the way we're using things like renewable technologies, the way we're using these large self-healing environments, I mean, all of this new technology, I would argue that this is actually the cutting edge of where technology is going versus legacy. So... I, I just don't think there's the perception or the, the marketing is bad. <laughs> well, and to a point that could be, I mean, when you think about the renewable energy sector, just 
uh, it's almost like a gig economy to a degree with how much uh, with solar or um, or wind or you know even maybe future geothermal or hydrogen some of these new technologies that are being integrated a lot of these companies are staying under the regulation threshold for for BPS so uh, they're doing pretty exciting things with new technologies and we're distributing the infrastructure more and more to your point, Patrick, adding a lot of new technologies into the system, the existing system, it's getting exciting again. And yeah. it may be a good time to, to take a look at the energy sector because there's been a lot of investment. Um, we're, we're, we're not just, we're not just in a, in a, a demand problem because of the, because of the skill problem that exists, but we're in a demand problem or facing a demand problem because the sector is, is literally being invested in to such a great degree and is being modernized. And that modernization should be exciting. We just have to tell the story. Here's why. Yeah, it, it is. It is, I think, um, incredible how fast the energy system is changing. And I don't, I don't want to tell people that you're never going to deal with legacy systems because there is a, a, a part part of the energy system that isn't going to disappear very quickly in terms of, of legacy devices and equipment. But if you like a challenge, if you like to be on the cutting edge and you like a challenge, um, understanding how to integrate between the, the two technologies, if you want to group them, uh, is a real challenge. And if we're going to continue to move by integrating these technologies, we're going to need people who can straddle both worlds. Yeah, definitely. And that's one of the things I've, I've always found about this field that I personally love is it's never a dull day. I mean, there is always something new to learn. There's always some new challenge, whether it is integrating the old with the new uh, or just trying to figure out where this new is taking us and how to make that new, you know, most successful within the company. But it's, uh, it's just, it, to, to me, it's one of those places where you don't ever really get bored. And that's, you know, along those same lines, I wanted to kind of touch on that subject with both of you, things like um, just the continuous learning aspect of this. What part of that is a benefit and what part of that is a challenge? And we'll start with Aaron. For continuous learning, I think that, I think it's, I'm trying to think of what the benefits that we would actually uh, try to focus on, because when when you're brought into the organization you're typically um, uh, staff lean and as you're as you're trying to in, improve your learning capabilities or or expand your scope of work internally to advance your career path um, your workforce you know as a workforce development uh, problem I think companies generally lack the uh, investment capital to put those into the pe the people that support that company so a lot of times it it almost requires a lot of employees to either do a lot of this on their own or uh, they're going to jump uh, to another company to try to advance their career and hope that that company might invest in them to a degree. Um, so I think that investment is probably part of the problem from a continuous learning perspective. And then I don't think that a lot of the learning around OT uh, that I've experienced so far provides CPEs toward even your existing IT certifications that demonstrate your cybersecurity uh, capabilities. So I think that from a continuous learning perspective, those are a couple of challenges. So I think from a benefit perspective, if we 
if we actually had some of those investments, if companies were investing in their cybersecurity workforce uh, to try to keep up with the the rate of change that that Cynthia was just mentioning, um, then we would see a significant investment in people, not just technology. And I think that that's that's generally a problem across the board. That when we bring in new defense tech, uh, when we bring in new defense capabilities, when we bring in uh, new people, that we don't really say part of the equation with this is that I also need to train my people and I need to invest in those people and get them the relevant certifications and things that allow them to prove um, that they have they have uh, the necessary skills to support this new defense capability that we had just brought in. So that I I think that um, is a is a great summary, Aaron. Uh, and I'm gonna I'm gonna bounce off that to another piece of the continuous learning and continuous education. If you're listening to this podcast and you're wondering if this is the right profession for you, or you're thinking about it, or you're in it right now, um, I think one of the more amazing pieces is as as Patrick said, there's always something new around the corner. It really is a field where continuous learning, I think, is essential. And there are, there are, you'll you'll know best about yourself whether you're somebody who wants to feel like you've mastered something and you've got it and and you know what good looks like and you move forward, or if you're somebody who gets bored really fast and doing the same thing over and over again is just not exciting and you want to know what the next thing is. And there's room for both of those, but. I would say in cyber, because the threats change so fast and the technology and the energy sector is changing so fast, it is such a play field for anyone who's a continuous learner who gets really excited about what's next and what's next and what's next. Um, I think uh, one of the one of the things that I use a lot is something that uh, Mark Bristow told me, which I got, I, I just really took it to heart, which is this concept of imposter syndrome. And that I haven't met really very many people in cybersecurity who don't at some point experience the feeling of imposter syndrome. And the, the wisdom that, that Mark shared in his approach to this is maybe that's not a bad thing. Because when it comes to cybersecurity, if you start to feel like you know it all, you're going to miss what's around the corner. You're going to miss that next threat. You're going to miss that next concept because it doesn't align with how you think, that feeling like you don't know it all is that edge, that little edge in your mind to keep you alert, to keep you thinking, because you're probably right. There is something that you don't know around the corner. There is a new threat that's being developed that's coming your way and putting the pieces together. That that little nudge on your on your thinking process, maybe it's not a bad thing. Maybe it's actually a good thing. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I've been in this business forever. And I still get imposter syndrome on occasion. <laughs> and the, the, one of the things about that is there's no way that any human could know all the things. So what we need is many humans knowing many things I instead. But uh, yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. And to touch on uh, Aaron's point, um, the investment in this, I, I see it all the time. Someone will buy a piece of new technology and then not train anybody how to use it, which effectively is wasting money on that technology. And you might as well have bought a space eater. Because if they don't know how to use it, they're not going to use it well or use it at all in, in some cases. So I get this, the old argument of what if you train them and they leave? And then what if you don't train them and they stay? Uh, that's, but I, I like the one where you mentioned um, the fusion center where they actually have it as more of a, it's built into the design where you, you will make them leave, right? They're, it's, it's, 
it's designed so that they come in, they train, and then they leave. Um, so I, those, those with that in mind really can be beneficial, I think. A firewall is only as good as the firewall administrator. <laughs> well said. <Right. laughs> and, and that, that's, a, that's a much more succinct way of saying everything we've just been saying, Aaron. <laughs> well, it's well, so said. true. And every company, this is across IT and OT, and it's every sector is encountering this problem because of the uh, the rate of change that we're experiencing within, within these industries and the advancements that we're seeing now and with AI and quantum computing and, and all the, the new things and cool things that are happening. Um, I mean, every defense, every company that I've encountered or done work at has a defense technology that's, that could be so much more capable than what it is. It's maturity. Uh, if you were to maturity model it, you would say, oh, this is very insignificant. Licenses aren't being used. Capabilities aren't being leveraged. Um, you know, the, the, the total scope and capability of the tool wouldn't, would, is not implemented properly. And that's because we don't invest in the people to make them better. So the company looks at the technology two, three years down the road after investing millions. And then they say, wait a minute, this isn't doing what we expected it to do. I'm going to go get a new one. And they go buy another competitive technology, replace that one, and still don't invest in the people. So three years down the road, they're doing it again. Can I, Patrick, can I just talk a little bit about what we're doing in Caesar for training? Because Oh yeah, by all means. It's it's fun. So so the first one I'll say is um we are offering a series of six training sessions. They're industrial control systems, cybersecurity trainings, and we're on the last one. We've completed five, but the last one is in Buffalo. Um and it's April twenty third through twenty fifth, 23rd through 25th in Buffalo, New York, and it's free. So if you are a staff member of an electric utility or an oil and natural gas utility and you want to up your game in ICS cybersecurity, there's a free training um, in Buffalo that we sponsor. It's three days long, and I, I guarantee you it won't be like any training that you've done. I, I, I've not heard. We've probably put through more than 500 people so far. Um, I've not heard anyone say it was not a good use of their time. It's a combined partnership between Idaho National Lab and CSER. Um, one of the things we do is go through hands-on, two hands-on training. One is called Cyber Strike Lights Out and the other is Cyber Strike Nemesis. The first day focuses on the Ukraine attacks. So if you really wondered what happened in Ukraine in 2015 and 2016, Tim Conway, one of the people who was um, in Ukraine on behalf of the United States to investigate and, and understand what happened in 2015, teaches the class. He's a He's amazing. If you've never met Tim Conway, I consider him to be one of our national treasures just in one person. Um, but you'll get a chance to actually do hands-on keyboard and repeat what happened in Ukraine in 2015. The second one, Nemesis, is more of a focus on nation-state TTPs. Um, and they're pretty intense. And then there's you can either take that track or you can take a track where it's lecture training, introduction to ICS fundamentals, and looking at current threats and in cyber threat intelligence. Um, and then the third day is a red team, blue team. It's a full day of red team, blue team training. So it's, it's pretty hands-on and the lights out nemesis in this more recent one storm cloud, which we debuted at the transition summit that, that Patrick mentioned earlier, storm cloud is a one day training on cybersecurity that focuses on renewable energy, specifically solar, but it also looks at wind EVs and batteries. I mean, it's planning to expand that, that module out. But those one-day trainings are available. So if you're 
a utility and is interested in having your, your team do an intensive one-day training or you're hosting a conference, um, I would suggest you reach out to us um, because we can bring that training to sites and, and deliver that as one-day trainings, any of those. We also, if you're a college student, we have a national college competition called Cyber Force. It's got a bunch of events throughout the year, but the main stay event is in November where college students come together and compete as teams in a major competition. And it is the only one that really is ICS focused. It's usually, I think one year it was defending a wind farm, but it will give you and your team um, a real great chance to look at this interplay between cyber and operational technology and get a feel for what the energy system might be and get excited about it because we really need smart people, as many as we can get, who can think creatively. It's it's not something you need to feel like you've mastered because, as Patrick said and, and, and I've said, this is a space where you're always going to be learning something new. And that's what makes it exciting. And um, we need people who really enjoy being on the edge. Now, that's those are some great programs. I've seen the content, and it's awesome. And I would agree, Tim is, in fact, a national treasure. And a good friend. <laughs> so yeah, by all means, uh, utilities, if you've got folks that need to get trained, send them there. It is a great program. Unfortunately, there's only one left. Hoping you guys decide to run some more of this, if, but based on the yeah, success we're, of we're, this, we're, we'll see. If you've been to one, feel free to send us feedback because we are, we are currently in the what next stage. Okay. So those that have been, by all means, send DOE your feedback and hopefully we can get some more people through these programs. Yeah. And on the same kind of thread, I wanted to kind of maybe piggyback on that. Uh, Aaron and I are working on a project as well to get some folks through in a similar training style with some hands-on to go from entry level to associate to expert. Um, and that's to soon to be announced, uh, you know, probably in the next, I don't know, couple of weeks. What do you think, Aaron? Yeah, I think two weeks is, um, is the plan. We're going to, we're going to be announcing a new uh, workforce development program with a purpose. So the, uh, Point of this is to advance your skills in operational technology and ICS as specifically for uh, the energy sector and and with real practical um, environments, simulations, things like that, things that that are very similar to what you're hearing uh, from Cynthia or uh, Idaho Labs or some some others. Everyone wants to, we need to train in this area and the more the better and it can all help with the uh, with the pairing of expert mentors and good trainers uh, like Patrick, who's written a lot of the NERC SIP standards and things of that nature to really bring these things together. So this is exciting. Yeah. I'm just hearing about this today. And so <laughs> from, the, from the DOE perspective, I'm really curious to see what this looks like. Well, I'm, I'm hoping we can all work together. There's, there's certainly enough, uh, you know, there's enough to be trained, enough people out there that need to be trained because there are so many positions that need to be filled. So we're all we're all working together to row this boat in the right direction. So along the lines of getting more folks in, um, let's talk about diversity and inclusion. So this this challenge is has been a long challenge, and we're I'd say we're we're incrementally getting better at it. And some would even argue that that's true. So, uh, well, Cynthia, I want to start with you first. What initiatives have been most successful in promoting diversity and inclusion within the cybersecurity workforce and ICS and OT or the sector? 
So it is such an excellent question. And I will say that I don't think I've seen good data yet. Um, I haven't seen, um, and, and I'm still new to this space and workforce. I've been at DOE for a year and a half. Uh, I think that I fundamentally believe diversity of thought is essential in cybersecurity. We can't anticipate, we can't plan, we can't train to events if we can't imagine them. And if we only think about something in a room with people who think like us and can't get out of the box, um, we're, we're in trouble. So I'm a real strong proponent of diversity of thought and diversity of thought automatically leads to culture and all the other challenges and, and benefits of the DEI effort. Um, I think, you know, the example that I gave for Sandia of working directly with a HBCU is is a great example and the and the odd thing that i had never thought about was the advantage it gives them because most of the students are american citizens which can be a real issue if you're in a security clearance um world i think there is just an enormous amount of talent generally out there that is not in the academic stream that we have a hard time bringing in because they don't meet the HR requirements for a degree or whatever it is that is looking for the classical trained person. And by not bringing, I mean, who would have, who would have thought that I'd be in cybersecurity when I worked in entomology and that you would be here, Aaron, in graphics, graphics or in, in microbiology. I think thinking about how, how we frame the jobs and, how we actively recruit, because in a lot of cases I hear the, well, we put it out there and that community didn't respond. And I do think that I get a little frustrated with that simple answer, because if the goal is to get that community to respond, then you need to go back to the drawing board about how you, how you designed the program or how you did the announcement, because the goal is to get those communities to engage with you and to participate with you and just doing the way that you've always done it and coming back and saying it didn't work is nothing new. It didn't work because it hadn't worked in the past. It's what can you think about creatively differently to do on top of that, to, to bring in those communities into your workforce. Well said. I, I completely agree with what, um, with what Cynthia is mentioning. And if you ever, if, if you guys have ever visited DEF CON at, at some point, or it, for those on the podcast that are listening, if you, if you haven't had the opportunity to go, that is probably one of the most diverse environments that I've ever seen. And what's really, what's really amazing about the diversity in that environment um, is you have people with the offensive perspective, the defensive perspective, you have people from all populations, all so even all countries, there's people from all over the world uh, that are there. And because you have, when you engage a piece of technology um, and you have this diverse group, somebody's going to have that creative initiative to figure out exactly how to actually make what we all know could happen actually happen. And it's not just about the advanced skill. It's about our advanced mindset. It's about the differences in our mindsets and thinking of problems differently and approaching them differently. And, and that's, what's really amazing. And that's why so many CDs come out of DEF CON every year is because there's so much, we just drop tech in and then people engage it. And we can we, because we're engaging it as a larger community, we're seeing so many different things come out of that. And I think that benefits, uh, that would benefit any sector, um, and I think that 
if we embrace that as as a as a fundamental concept of what we need to do to be better at cybersecurity, if engineering embraces bringing in cybersecurity professionals with an offensive mindset, uh, if if the uh, defense uh, side brings in the offense side and, and the offense side uh, starts to appreciate the defense. We call that purple teaming to a degree. Um, and we start working more together. Um, then that that color purple that comes out of this is it, it usually generates some amazing things. And I just love seeing that come together. Just to give an example of trying to reach out to these communities, I, I the most recent curriculum that I developed before I came to DOE there were examples in it of scenarios. So-and-so does X, X does this, what do you do? Or how would you, so-and-so finds this? And it might sound really subtle, but when all the examples are about John, Tom, Alex, Kirk, they're all men, yeah. that doesn't yeah. help. And they're all American names, that doesn't help. And so I went online and I basically just looked up and linked in some of the major cybersecurity firms and examples of names and created a spreadsheet for them of, of other kinds of names of people who actually work in the field to use in their examples. Because if you can't see yourself in the training materials, it's really hard to see yourself in the job. So that's, that's subtle, but there are so many ways in which we can modify just slightly to make it more appealing to audiences that are diverse and it takes some thought and some practice, but it's not really that hard. No, it's not. And that you're echoing a sentiment I heard just a, I think it's a, maybe a week or so ago. I was in um, Denver university speaking during engineers week to the society of women engineers and women in engineering group. And I was fortunate enough to be invited to speak to this group. I'm thinking, okay, I'm completely unqualified as both a man and not an engineer. Uh, but they wanted to hear an outside perspective and have a discussion around the intersection between engineering and uh, security. So we talked a lot about CIE and those kinds of things. But the, the main thread was there was a lot of, you know, discussion around if you don't see your if you don't see examples of people in those roles then you don't feel like that is a comfort place for you it's not a comfortable path uh you feel like you've got to push harder to make it happen there were all of these different perspectives and it was very eye-opening for me and i try to pay attention to this as much as i can but even things like you know uh, even in my own marketing materials for example i try to use either no humans or all humans in in my pictures um, I try to think of all the different names, just like you mentioned, to try to get as much inclusion. My companies have women. So there, there are ways to make some of these things happen, but it takes an active, an active thought. Uh, we're not going to solve the problems that we got ourselves into with the same people who got us there. Right, right. Yeah, yeah. I, I, think, I think everyone knows what that means. Yeah, but um, and, and Cynthia, to your point as well about some of the, like the job postings. I mean, I see these, they go out. And they list things like, you know, unattainable degrees and uh, certificates and things that you, you know, as an entry-level person or even as a, you know, mid-tier person, there's no way you would have those. Uh, so relaxing some of those and making it more appetizing to people that are, you know, um, interested and trainable uh, with some degree of expertise, and then you can kind of work them in and, and get them going. But even then, on the other side of that, like these, these HR job codes in a lot of these companies, 
they don't have something that fits, you know, OT security person. They've got like, you know, engineer level three or specialist level two and those kinds of things. And when you've got like a top tier engineer making, you know, X amount per year, and then some person comes in probably half their age with green hair and a nose ring covered in tattoos and is making almost the same amount of money. It's a, it's a weird challenge for their HR departments to, to figure that out and wrap their head around that, not to mention the corporate culture issues that come with it. Now, speaking of that, how do we get more people in, it, you know, cause this, this getting people in the door, we talked about, we touched on that. Let's talk a little bit more about that. And it's not just how do you get them in, but once you get them in, how do you keep them? That that's the, the those two parts are the 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 bigger challenges that getting them in and then and then actually keeping them. So Aaron, I'll start with you. Sure. And to your last point, I love I love the, what you said there about uh, the images that you use. I always say we're all ninjas. Um, cool thing about a ninja is everyone's wearing a hooded cowl and black trousers and black jacket and some some sandals or cool boots, and you never know who who it is. But we're all in, we're on the battle together. Uh, um, well yeah. said. <laughs> Thank you. I, I'm, I'm a big fan of ninja armor, by the way. And that being said, uh, the offensive weapons are pretty exciting too. And if we take that perspective and say, what well, what can we do to, you know, uh, encourage more to enter into this uh, space and then retain those and uh, those people that we brought in that want to be ninjas. Um, I think first, you know, I think there has to be a little bit of a purpose behind uh, the workforce um, excitement as far as bringing them in. Uh, and, and a lot of times I interview my students, I do this survey for every class that comes through. And, um, and I say, why are you doing cybersecurity? Why, why did you choose this field? And it is a money, money motivated field. in, in um, I would say in a, as a majority of the answers, but there are a lot of people that are entering the field that are doing it for the purpose. And if we think about police officers and, and teachers and people that do great work in our community, but do it for purpose, not for the paycheck. Um, I think that that obviously would be something that would bring more people in if we could start to advertise the purpose more. And, it, and, and to, in the media world, in the public world, um, cybersecurity is kind of a really foreign concept. I don't think a lot of people understand what we do when we talk to them. I don't think that they understand the benefits of it until uh, they've experienced as you know a credit card uh, fraud issue or or one of their grandparents has experienced a, a fraud or something of that nature. And then when they have a real financial harm, they start to think, oh, this is necessary, but they don't really know how companies are dealing with it. Uh, so that purpose, I think, makes a difference. Uh, I think the pay is obviously very good where it's an industry paying extremely high because of the the high demand as and low supply. Um, and I think that helps. And but then when it, when we get those when we get those people with purpose in to retain them, it unfortunately is a uh, an investment. It's it's saying I didn't just hire a cybersecurity professional and now I'm secure. I actually have to invest in that person, invest in the infrastructure that's necessary to protect those systems. If they don't see the purpose manifest at a company, which I think a lot of people in cybersecurity in general are very disappointed in the performance of the company they support. If they don't see that manifest, that's when they lose their excitement. And I think they'll stay if they see you investing and making a priority and doing the right things. I think that's what makes the difference. Yeah, I think, Aaron, you know, feeling appreciated, period, is a big deal. And when 
when your employer is investing in you and you realize that it's not just a burn um, to come and then leave, I think that makes a huge, huge difference. Again, I, I, you know, I would sadly say that we don't have a lot of data in why people stay in their positions when it comes to ICS, particularly in the energy sector. Um, I can share with you some of the things that I've heard. I think the concept of emission. So, for example, we do a lot of work with state, local, territorial, and tribal organizations. Uh, and if you're working with a state public utility commissioner's office, their ability to meet a competitive wage for the kinds of cybersecurity talent they need to help them make good decisions and inform the commission on on you know ground truth about cybersecurity and some of the challenges in energy, it's it's really hard to compete with the state <laughs> what the state can offer. But what they can do is sell the mission. And I think we're not always great about selling the mission in a way that makes attraction and, and retention there for people. I also think having a career path, and you mentioned this, Aaron, but if you're coming in as, an, as a new person into this space and you're starting in an entry-level job and there is no path forward for, for you, um, that can be a real that can be a real challenge. At some point, you you do need to move on for your career, for your family, for your financial reasons. Um, so having a, a path to advance and and going back to the to comment that you made about the NIST Nice framework, there is a lot of work going on behind the scenes. I know a lot of people who are involved in working with NIST to 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 get out the OT version of the Nice um, KSAs although they're not called KSNS anymore. So that is happening. And I think that will help a lot of us who are working on the on the roles of taking that technical knowledge and translating it into a format that the public can use for public good are, are waiting for that to come out. So there is a chance once we have some kind of standardized language about what to call the skills and abilities and the knowledge pieces that go into OT and ICS cyber, that it'll be easier to construct career paths um, for people so that they have an understanding of, of where they might go next and what that progression looks like when they're in a job. And so employers understand what a progression might look like and, and how to structure the skills to move up a ladder of skills in a, in a logical way that, that prepares them for the next whatever role they are. But retention, I think, is really hard. It's one thing when you can compete at the salary level, but I will tell you for a lot of the utilities I work with, they're never going to financially compete. And for a lot of the small, medium businesses out there that are struggling and water systems and a lot of the other critical infrastructure that isn't at the high end, they're never going to compete with those salaries. We have to find other ways to give them things of value to them so that they stay. Yeah. And one of the things I've seen that does help, at least for some, not for all, but is that that kind of mission focus or sense of purpose? Because when you are the... The infrastructure, especially the critical infrastructure, the culture at those organizations is so different than it is at a commercial operation and nothing against commercial operations. But a lot of these situations are literally life or death. Like if the water doesn't flow or the power doesn't flow or the gas doesn't flow, there's a very significant impact to civilization as we know it and very quickly. So, uh, you know, I've seen, you know, like you know, operators at a, on a control floor of any of these facilities 
they're going to keep that system up because of that, their dedication and they know the bigger picture and, and the way that that kind of purpose or focus is there. So it, it has a lot more of a, I don't know, I don't know, it's like a community feel. I don't want to say family feel, but it does have that more purpose-driven approach to it. You feel better about what you do at the end of the day because you know you did keep the lights on or the water flowing or the gas. You did your part in that. So there is a lot of sense of purpose in those roles as well. I've seen for some folks that is a very significant motivator in addition to, you know, whatever salaries that they have that are there. In addition, and other things is maybe it's not the greatest salary, but it's a very, you know, reliable salary because these are companies that are not going to go away anytime soon. You know, they're, they're basically critical infrastructures by definition for a reason. So as far as a stable income, you probably couldn't find anything better. So I've, I've actually seen a lot of really interesting kind of motivations for why they make fantastic jobs. And I think even in some of these, there's less burnout because uh, burnout is a real thing in cyber and you just got to have to, you got to acknowledge it. And I think Camilla Treshow of um, Treshow and Son in Copenhagen did a great presentation on this at B-Sides Copenhagen, but uh, she's done a lot of study on this and she's got some great things to read on LinkedIn. But burnout's real and it can really affect our ability to do our job and it affects our company and our role and that kind of thing. But I've seen in a lot of these infrastructure companies, they they take security a little more seriously with a different kind of, as I mentioned, mission or purpose sense. And even in some cases, they're funded differently for it or have some sort of regulatory requirements for it. So I, I think there is it's not perfect and I want to make it up to be some rosy picture, but by all means, I think there's less burnout. Uh, than there is in some of the other sectors. What are your thoughts? So I'll say, I, I mean, I it, particularly for the 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 utilities that I work with, there's an opportunity to feel proud of your job. Yeah. And not all jobs provide that, but the mission, and it's the same, you know, if you're working at the state level um, or the local level in cybersecurity, everyone is aware of how desperate the situation is for employees in ICS and in critical infrastructure and cyber. Everybody working in those spaces understands that we don't have enough talent and we need more talent in those positions. Um, so when you come to those positions, there's, you're, you're part of something, as, as Patrick, as you said, it's called critical infrastructure for a reason. And there's a, an opportunity to not just feel like you're contributing to a mission, but to be proud of the work that you do. And that I think some people have lost an opportunity to feel that kind of pride when they come home. And I think that is really true in, in the critical infrastructure world. And you see that a lot in a disaster, like when disasters occur and, you know, hurricanes come in um, and, and you see multiple communities uh, provide firefighting resources. Um, they send in uh people to help out with recovering, you know, different sectors, there's emergency response um, ambulances and others going in, but there's also that the people from various uh, power utilities and they're going in to assist as well. And that sense of purpose really does translate into real tangible work. When you watch, when you watch those people come together and, and restore a community back to health. Awesome. Well, we're going to call it a wrap with that. And I'm going to give you both a minute to kind of wrap up your thoughts and tell us kind of your final parting messages for any of the podcast listeners before they, they depart. And Cynthia, I'll let you go first. Thanks, Patrick. And thanks again for inviting me to to come and talk with you. Aaron, such a joy to have another chance to share, share a stage with you. Really enjoyed the first round and the second round. I think my parting thought would be, I'm really, really 
uh, happy to be at Caesar and in the DOE mission. I think that the chance to do something at a national scale, both in terms of national security, but also the well-being of everyone out there who relies on energy, in the particular space that I work in, which is with the rural electric cooperatives and the municipal utilities um, that desperately need uh, resources to do what they know they need to do and want to do, the chance to play any role in making that happen is worth a lot to me. And so for me, it's a real honor and privilege to be able to work at DOE and to be in a service service role. Service has always been important in my career. And so if you're looking for something like that and you want to contribute, I would just encourage you to stick it out. It can be a long haul, but none of the three of us came from cyber originally. So just keep at it. It it is it is something you can learn and it is something that you can contribute to. And the energy system is at such an amazing time. We rarely in our lives get to play a chance to get to play any role in national security. And we rarely get to play a role in a transformation that happens only once every couple of generations. And this particular area of cyber and energy is is unique because you get to play in that space. And rarely, rarely will we ever be able to get to play in a space where we can say we help change history. So I encourage you to to plug plug away at it and and come join us. Fantastic. I love it. Aaron. Oh, and thank you, Cynthia, for those uh, very kind uh, words as well. I've enjoyed uh, being on those panels with you as well. You are a force of nature. And Patrick, thank you again for bringing, bringing me uh, together with Cynthia to talk about these important things. Um, I really see, I would like to see, I think there's a, only a few sectors, if you really think about it, every time we've done a tabletop at a national level exercise level, it always comes down to energy. And there's only a few sectors where disruptions and attacks have such a huge community impact. And I think if you're looking for a mission and you're looking for uh, a chance to defend against real attackers doing real things, uh, not just stealing data, uh, social security numbers, things like that, but where they're really trying to do damage, um, this is an exciting field. And I think that if you're a cybersecurity professional or you're thinking about getting into cybersecurity, um, this is this is the field I would want to go into uh, if I was thinking about it for the first time and I knew it was possible. Every every general sector, whether it's healthcare to finance to to energy to the many others that are critical infrastructure or not, even if you're uh, just going into retail, for example, uh, every sector has unique things about it. And I think you're you're going to get a chance to learn about some of those things in some of these really cool workshops that DOE was talking about, like Storm Cloud and um, maybe participating in CTFs and and some of those things like Cyberforce. Uh, I hope you'll leave us off with at least a couple of plugs on how to sign up for that, uh, Cynthia, because I know my students would be excited about it. I'm excited about it. And I'm really excited about the modernization that's taking place in this industry. And as a cybersecurity professional, the opportunity to be a part of that and defending that sounds really fun to me as well. Awesome. Well, I know I will include in the show notes links that Cynthia provides to everything she mentioned and more, and pretty much anything that we talked about that's got a link, I'll put that in the show notes for the listeners. So check that out. 
And I am the lucky one because I get to work with all of you amazing people in this sector. So I feel the most uh, lucky of all. But I really appreciate you both spending your time with us on this podcast and sharing your knowledge with all those out there that hopefully we can bring them in and get them into the space. And I hope to meet all of you someday as well. And maybe you'll be on the next podcast. With that, thank you both so much. I really appreciate it. And we'll hope to see you soon. Thank you, Patrick. Thanks, Patrick. Thanks for listening to the Ampere Industrial Security Critical Assets Podcast. You can find us on all your favorite podcast sources. So please like, subscribe, and share with your colleagues. Check out our other content, such as blogs, news, and more at AmpereSec.com. That's A-M-P-E-R-E-S-E-C.com. Ampere Industrial Security, securing your world.